Hello and welcome to all in the new business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. This week we're talking about capital, how to raise it and how to know which of the many different options out there is the right one for you. And here to discuss it with me, we have the man who's played pretty much every role in that process. He's been a bootstrapper, an angel investor, he advises VCs, he works for a private equity firm when he's not busy leading Mana.Aero of course, it's Bobby Healy. And we've the COO who led Cubic Telecom through six investment rounds in the last seven years. They've raised a total of 100 million so far. It's Shane Sorohan. And in the all-in trailblazer hot seat, we have the renewable energy entrepreneur who led a company sales so big that the payback for investors created the most new millionaires in Irish corporate history. It's Eddie O'Connor from Supernode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB backing Irish business. Okay, guys, so as we all know, there are many different kinds of capital that you can raise, debt, private equity, VC. How can someone possibly know if they've no previous experience in this area, what's the best option for them? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the, the type of capital, the amount of capital you raise has to be appropriate to the business that you're building. And some businesses are, are, by their nature, always going to need capital to operate, and they're not going to generate revenue or profits, for that matter, for quite quite some time. So they'd be more appropriate to VC backing, and some can be bootstrapped, and then some are healthy businesses that can, you know, for various different reasons, take on more debt or more cash to grow more quickly or change the shareholder structure. But it's horses for courses. It depends completely mm-hmm. on the type of business that you're building and what stage you're at. Well, let's use both your current companies as an example. And Shane, I'll go to you because you've raised or you've overseen, I suppose, the uh, the raising of six investment rounds in seven years. Lots of different kinds or how did you guys come to the conclusion of what was the best option? Yeah, so we, we've gone through six rounds, as you say. We've, as, as Bobby was mentioning there, looked at the various stages that we were at in our growth and looked then to see, well, what was the best capital to get at that stage of our growth. Uh, for the earlier rounds, we brought in equity rounds. So, you know, we weren't at a stage where we were profitable and where we were able to support any kind of debt financing. So we brought in equity, we brought in the right shareholders to be able to support the company through those various stages. And then in more recent rounds, we looked at debt structures. So we're in a position now where we're turning profitable, we're able to support debt structures where there's repayment required at a future date. Um, So we've kind of mixed it up in that way. Earlier stage, we looked at equity. Later stages, looking at debt. Well, one thing I know you both feel very strongly about is that you should always get advice if you're not sure, Mm -hmm. which seems really obvious, but I know a lot of people don't do it. Um, And actually, Bobby, I know you've got a pretty interesting story about a time that you didn't do it. Yeah, Tell us about (coughs) Eland. Absolutely, yeah. Eland Technologies, a business that I started in Mexico and grew it for 12 years and at the end of it I sold the business to a trade player and I never two two huge mistakes I made one was not actually leveraging the business because it was quite a profitable business and two which was kind of you know the consequence of or or one was consequence of two was that I never took on external advice not because I was stupid and I didn't believe in external advice because I didn't know it existed and I didn't know the world of options that I had and I sold the business probably for a quarter of what I should have sold it for, you know, and that's probably being conservative and no regrets at all. But I know very clearly looking back, if I had taken advice, that advice would have led to better structures for the business. As I took it forward, I would have probably grown it a lot more and sold it for a lot more. As I said, no regrets, just, Mm -hmm. you know, clearly looking back, I should have had advice. And one thing that you mentioned when we spoke about this earlier was that uh, the main point of getting advice from your perspective was to dress up the bride, I think is is how you put it. How how important is that to... It's very important. Frame what you're selling. I mean, you know, when you're operating a business, you you operate it a particular way. It's around a product or around a service or whatever it is you're doing, and you're expert at that and and at positioning that and and selling that. But you're also always prepared. Your company is also a product. In the end, it's an asset that you're building to sell or to float or to capitalize, you know, on in some way. 
And, you know, someone that's great at running a company, a technology company, or building a product and getting a product market fit, you may be great at that, but you don't have a clue how a company should look to investors or to a public market, anything like that. So, yeah, dressing the bride very much, you, you should always be telling the story of the business as much as telling the story of the product and you need professionals to help you with that and you know there's some of them plenty of them actually in Ireland but you know I would always look you know to the states or look to the UK for professional advisors that that, that help me to get the story right for the for the evolution of the business mm. yeah okay and in terms of getting the story right Shane, you've obviously had to do this six times now to yeah. a variety of investors, and you've got some really heavy hitters in there, Qualcomm, Audi, right. and so on. How do you tell the story of your company to those people? Yeah, so uh, and it's, it's a really good point that Bobby's making, good, good question in, in relation to how, how, do, how do you pitch that correctly to the audience? So I, my previous life to Cubic was actually working in the advisory side. So I've seen it from, from both mm. sides of things. I worked in, in corporate finance for a number of years. So pitching the company in the right way is absolutely key. And it's the audience that you're pitching to as well. So it needs to be catered and tailored at times to, to be presented in the right way. For us, it's about pitching the team and making sure that you present the team, that you know what it is that you're talking about, how it is that you're going to grow the business and where you're going to take it. You've got to show them a credible plan as to how you're going to bring the company from where it is today to where it is that you want to take it and how you're going to use the funding to get it there. So we've raised six rounds. We have a, a number of very strong investors in Cubic. So we have Qualcomm that you mentioned. We have uh, Audi, the car manufacturer. We have Valide, who's a SIM software company. So they're kind of strategic investors that their day-to-day -day operation isn't investing in companies, but they work and support companies in the same market as them. Mm. We then have a lot of financial investors. So we have ISAF, who's uh, the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. We have Enterprise Ireland, and recently we've brought in the European Investment Bank. So there are two different categories of investors, strategic and financial, and how you present to both of those is quite different as well. So you've got to look at the audience that you're going to and picture them the right way for those investors. Can you give us some examples of, um, let's take two examples of completely different ways that you would have had to pitch Cubic mm. to different investors and yeah. why? So on the strategic side, you're, you're more looking at the technology, how it is that you're going to build within the ecosystem, the innovation that you're going to bring and why it's going to change and develop things within the market that you're working in. And can I actually stop you there? Can yeah. we get you to give us like a 30-second roundup of what Cubic does for anyone who doesn't know? Sure, sure, of course. So we connect devices. So we provide a solution to device manufacturers to connect their devices globally. Uh, we do a lot in the automotive space, so we connect cars and provide a solution to connect those cars no matter where they're going in the world, all through one central platform. And it's, I think, isn't it, 2 million vehicles in 180 different countries. So that's right. Yeah, you're, so you're doing something right. Do you we, think it's those numbers that brought on your most recent investors? Or? It, it would have been for the most recent ones. And I think for the earlier ones, it would have been presenting the story of how we were going to get there. And now that we've delivered on it, there's credibility to what we're doing. So uh, you're right. We have 2.5 million devices on our platform now. That's growing to 20 million over, over the next three to four years. Uh, we're based in Dublin, in Sandyford. We have a team of 140 people there. So we're, we're continuing to grow and, you know, the opportunities look good for us. Great. And uh, for yourself, Bobby, Shane mentioned there that investors tend to focus on the team, the company's team mm, in a big yeah, way. Did you yeah. find the same to be true? Yeah, it is true. Uh, I mean, if you if you ask any VC and and many other many other investors, they'll spend more than half their time looking at an initial deck for a business, looking at the team, you know, and finding out what are their you know what type of profile do they have, what's their track record, like uh, you know, is it their first rodeo or is it you know is it just that they're smart will get them through? But the team is absolutely massive. Um, and then there's the other things like product market fit, size of the market, all the obvious stuff. But but team is the number one factor in an investor's decision on a business. And if you were putting together a team tomorrow, a winning team to yeah. draw the attention of investors, yeah. what would you be trying to make sure you had like a little of this, definitely some of that? Uh, I think uh, you obviously need a technology leader um, 
in, in the spaces that I tend to end up in. And I'm a tech person myself, but I also have in, in MANA now a technology leader in Alan Hicks, our CTO, that's crucial. Uh, you need uh, human resources or a people person nearly straight away in a business to aid the, you know, the, the normal and inevitable teething problems that a, a growing business has and a business that goes from 30 to 50 to 150 and onwards you know changes its culture every time nearly every year your culture you know evolves and you need a really strong people person to drive that and a lot of businesses would forget that and in fact a lot of businesses that I advise forget that and it's absolutely critical um, and, and after that then your domain expert so whatever domain that you're in be it connectivity or be it your drones in our case so aeronautical uh, you need that domain expertise as well so you need to pull together a generalized management team with domain expertise and tech expertise i mean that's been prescriptive but that's that's mm-hmm. kind of suits my businesses Okay. And another thing that comes up uh, on this show a lot is the need to start the process early when you're looking for capital and to assume that it's going to take twice as long as you think it will take and you're going to need twice as much funding as you think you're going to need. So I'd be interested to see what you both think of that. I mean, how early should you start? Uh, Should you really be doubling what you maybe think you need cash-wise? Yeah, so so I would totally agree with that. And it's something that's often said, but it's said for the reason that it's absolutely true. So you should be going out to raise funds as early as possible. So don't wait until you feel that you might be getting a little tight. Go out when you're feeling comfortable and okay. raise as much as you can raise because inevitably it will take longer to close on an investment. You know, they can range from <coughs> two months to a year and a year is usually more likely. So it's to make sure that you give yourself enough cash runway to get there mm-hmm. uh, and, and then absolutely look to raise as much as you can at that time because they're yeah. very time-consuming investment rounds. So, you know, they're a distraction for the management team. So when you go out to do it, make sure that you maximise that effort at the time. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. Uh, luckily for me, it hasn't worked out that way. I haven't been burned. It's, it's worked out, you know, it's been very quick for me to raise. But, in uh, you know, I, I work with lots of small companies, particularly in, in Ireland, and I've seen, you know, particularly seed stage companies getting really badly burned by ignoring that advice, by saying, you know what, we've six months of cash left or we've less than 12 months of cash left and then they leave it and they end up over a barrel having to take awful terms and nearly losing control of their business because they've run out of time. And they're leverage. I mean, time for me is leverage, right? So mm-hmm. if you're sitting at a, a negotiation or a discussion around valuation or the amount of capital you take on or the terms you take it on at, if you have 18 months left on the runway, that conversation is very different than if you have three months left on the runway. And I've met CEOs of Irish businesses that have had a month's more you know, cash flow to go through while they're trying to negotiate a position on a, mm. an investment. You know, that's still happening today. Yeah. yeah. So investors can smell desperation, like probably most good investors. Mm. Though they, yeah. well, most good investors won't because in the end it's a marriage, right? So they need the management team to be just as incentivized as as they are. It doesn't work if it's a misbalance. But there's mm-hmm. plenty of investors, particularly less professional, maybe private investors, that will say, "Oh, you know what? I can chip away at the valuation or the terms or control all these things mm-hmm. to take advantage of cash versus you know you know leverage." And those are the ones that, that give everybody a bad name. There's some VCs to do that too, but generally a professional investor, either a VC, private equity or debt, will understand that you know, it needs to work on both sides. But still, mm-hmm. you can't get away from very simple principle, even when you're comfortable in terms of cash position, be raising. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think as well with that, so pushing on terms like the VCs or investors, like it's their business, so they are going to look to get the best terms possible for them, but absolutely they need to be incentivizing the management team and making sure that is that, that marriage that they're working together. Uh, I think it comes back to the point about advisors as well, so having the right strong advisors beside you will support you in getting the best terms possible for your company. Like these advisors go through this day in, day out, so they'll be able to advise you as to what's best for you in the long term. It can be quite easy when you're under pressure, if you're short on cash, just accept whatever terms that are there on that day. Mm. But that fixes the short term problem of not having cash. 
it could create a longer term problem if you don't agree the right terms. So it's a careful balance that can be hard to get, but to hold out for the best terms for you and the company to be able to support the growth going forward. So have you said no sometimes, Shane? We have, yeah, yeah. We've had, on, on a few occasions, we've said no because it wasn't, it either wasn't the right investment partner for mm. the for the long-term <coughs> growth of the company or the terms that were being offered weren't right for us at the time. Now, we were lucky in that we had options. So we were able to, uh, go to other sources of, of capital at the time. But um, in a scenario where you don't have those options, it can be difficult. But try and, and push to get the best terms that you can. You know, it, it's, it's really essential. I'm imagining myself being maybe the head of a company with three months leverage to go and faced with a, a, you know, some terms and conditions that an investor is putting in front of me that I'm not too happy with. It must be so hard to say no. It is. It's, it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And a point will come where you may have to say yes. If, you, if you're out of cash and the alternative is that the company is not going to continue, then you, you're at the point where you, you may just need to, to yeah. take the funds. But it's trying to push that. And, and most investors, and Bobby mentioned it, will realise that it, it needs to be the right balance. It needs to be a compromise on the terms. Um, but where that isn't the case... It's to try and push it. As, yes, as it's much pretty as horrible. Can. I mean, I, I've in Eland we were 150 people. We did run. We get we, we came pretty low on cash. And we had to cut numbers. It's it's mm. horrible mm. to have to do it. But it, that that was better to right size the business than to take the wrong deal yeah. from an investor. Yeah. You know, so we chose twice mm. to cut headcount and cut costs than take the wrong mm. investment because the wrong investment long term would have destroyed the business. Yeah. Cutting costs is hard, but better option yeah and would you guys have any tips for people in terms of how to know if you do have the right terms and conditions or if the deal in front of you is the right one <laughs> well I, I think a lot of management teams will know themselves what's mm. what's right for them they know the company inside out so they know what's right for them and what what sits well for them and if the investor that's coming in with them is the right investor for them so i think instinctively the management team will know i think advisors as well will be able to point out some of the areas that just aren't right you know aren't maybe standard terms or terms that they should be accepting both on the legal side uh, and also then on the kind of commercial terms of how the investor will be repaid so i think instinctively for the management team and then the advisors as well and there's a there's a human part to it too. I mean, I would always have referenced my investor. So when I raised the seed round for Mana, I, I interviewed, or interviewed, I met three CEOs of portfolio companies that were in this VC, that were invested in by this VC, because I didn't know, you know, this VC company at all. They had a good reputation on paper, but I wanted to know inside, what is this person like as an investor? So you do your background as well. Just like when you're hiring someone, you check references. When you're getting an investment, you also do the background work. Mm -hmm. Certainly sure, for seed stage sense. businesses, that's very appropriate. For, for later stage ones like Cubic, probably less so, right? But, but certainly for seed stage, you're getting a VC on board. You want to know not just who their firm is, what their fund is like and what their you know, investment record is like. You want to know what their record is like on your board, giving you advice, you know, are they on your side or are they only on, you know, are they on the wrong side? So you do that background work as well as part of it. And we spoke about uh, Eland earlier, but what was different mm. for you by the time Car Trawler came around? Yeah, I was like 12 years older. Uh, what was different? Um, I mean, the different thing about Car Trawler was that I had Mike McGurty with me and Mike had a, you know, Mike was the CEO of Car Trawler. I was the CTO and Mike, you know, had a finance background. So Mike took care of, not took care of, but understood that world a lot better than I did. And so, and then we had Jillian as well, who's our people. So the big difference for me was instead of one person running the company, in the case of Eland, it was three people. And that's huge. And again, that's to the advice, you know, that's kind of the same thing in terms of advice that I would give founders or, or you know, fledgling businesses is, you know, you can't do everything. You only have a certain skill set, get the other people on board. So for me, the big difference was instead of, you know, my narrow skill set, I had these other two hugely important, you know, parts of the management team in place. So therefore, we didn't just execute well on the plan. We also structurally, in terms of the leverage buyouts that we did, the debt that we brought into the business, the private equity, that was planned the whole way along. And it was kind of, we weren't just executing an operational plan, we were executing a governance and a corporate plan as well. So, 
And in terms of other factors that might affect a fledgling business, uh, Brexit, for example, mm. as we hurtle mm. towards a deadline at the end of this month, do we think that trying to raise capital in the days of Brexit and the uncertainty at the moment is a whole different different kettle of fish than, than it would be without it? Is Brexit having a knock-on effect on business? Oh, well, it, it certainly will, and, mm. and it is already having a knock-on effect. I think there's the uncertainty that's there at the moment is just creating this kind of state of flux, and no one's sure exactly which way to go. So everyone's having to prepare for Brexit and mm. see how it's going to impact their business. In terms of, of raising funds, I think it's, it's impacting across all areas, so it is impacting on raising funds as well. Particularly, you know, the UK is a source of capital for Irish companies, so the impact of Brexit that Brexit will have on that you know it could could be damaging for for businesses yeah. as well yeah and Ster- just you know in, in a simple one sterling i mean you know sterling's yeah. taking the trashing uh which has been great for for mana because we raised you know dollars we're a dollar based company so mm-hmm. and all our costs are most of our staff are in the uk so we've got a 20 percent you know tailwind but car trawlers in the travel industry and the travel industry is absolutely crucified by Brexit because uncertainty goes straight to spending on leisure travel and, you know, discretional spending in the UK and the UK is one of the biggest travel markets. So, yeah. you know, it's really already showing horrible signs of what the future might look like. And it's around uncertainty, less just, you know, evidenced change. It's around uncertainty, changes behaviour, behaviour changes. You know, and can we expect that to die down once there is a decision and a resolution of some sort? Or, you know, yeah. in, in your experience, do these things take a long time to settle? It will, it will really depend on what that decision is or what the outcome is. Sure. You know, I think if there is a Brexit, there's going to be knock-on impact of that for, for a period, a good period of time afterwards mm-hmm. until people, until the UK figures out how it's going to fit in then with, with the global market mm-hmm. uh, and then how the global market reacts to that. So I, I, I think if there's no Brexit and we maybe revert back to where we were a few years ago before the referendum, then, you know, things could settle back quite quickly. Yeah, it does feel like there'll be an extension. Um, an extension's good and bad, right? An extension, at least, you know, the guillotine hasn't fallen, but the uncertainty is still there. And mm-hmm. uncertainty, you know, can can almost be a bigger problem than the decision being made, you know? So Absolutely. if the thing just happened and everyone could build a plan mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the finance minister could build a budget around, around everything, then that's one thing. But mm-hmm. in uncertainty comes political unrest, because, you, know, you know, investment is starved because the uncertainty just everyone postpones. And so, like, for me, uncertainty is nearly as bad as a stupid decision. Because at least with a stupid decision, you can plan and you can operate around that and you can change your budgets, you can mm-hmm. you can adapt. But the uncertainty is just postpones decisions and, and that you know, affects all industries. And in terms of that uncertainty and how Ireland fits into all that at the moment, are we still seen as an attractive place for <laughs> investors? Do we have a healthy entrepreneurial society at the moment? Oh, for sure. You know, I think we, we have a really, really healthy entrepreneurial society. There's lots of great companies either coming through, you know, early stages of growth or, or going through rapid phase of growth at the moment. So you're seeing a lot of international attention in towards Ireland, but there's a great investor community in Ireland as well. So it is a good place to raise capital. Um, we recently raised funds from the European Investment Bank, and they're saying this is a country that they want to target more for, for investments because there's companies like Cubic uh, coming out of Ireland and, and on a kind of rapid growth plan on a global scale. So there's lots of those companies in Ireland. I think, you know, for, for the early stage companies raising that initial seed capital, there's lots there. I think for the high growth phase, there's lots of capital for those kind of companies. It's, it's the million to five million range of, of investment capital that I think is still kind of quite difficult to raise in Ireland because you're, there's lots of companies at that stage. They've come through the initial, initial seed stage uh, and they're all competing for a local investment capital. There's less mm-hmm. international focus for that particular range of investment. But it's still there. It's just going to the companies that present themselves and pitch themselves in the best way. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think we're we're still very much a, an investable country with a great um, innovative entrepreneurial culture. The ecosystem here is getting stronger and stronger. You look at you know accelerators like Dogpatch, and you look mm-hmm. at the 
the you know the new generation of entrepreneurs that are coming up there it's it's 10 times what it was when i started you know 100 years ago but but you know <laughs> unfortunately i've seen you know decades of evolution of this in dublin yeah. and it's never been as good and as strong as it is now and it's never been as well connected to capital particularly west coast capital you know european capital it's it's never been in such a good state the, That's you know, great to hear. At the yeah. height of Brexit fears, there's yeah, a no, light. Like it's the opposite. <laughs> to be honest with you, Brexit plays well to that, I think. You, mm. know, so the, the, you know, the worse it gets in terms of Brexit, the better the environment here for raising capital, funnily enough. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, there'll be obviously other horrible things <laughs> that happen, but, but generally Brexit doesn't affect that you know, ecosystem here. What, what does affect it is policy, public policy. It's policy is the next you know, cog that needs to slot into place a little bit better than it currently is. Mm. Okay. I, I, I think that the early stage capital, particularly in Ireland, you know, is, is mm. really well supported. So supporting those companies through the, that, that early phase, you mentioned dog packs there, Bobby, mm. the likes of Enterprise Ireland is a great organisation that supports yeah. early, early stage entrepreneurs that have a great idea but need to bring it through to fruition. Mm. And they're, they're fantastic. Actually, they're, they're early Ireland. stage investors yeah. in, in Cubic. I, I, I forgot to mention Enterprise. Enterprise... You know, I've always worked with Enterprise Ireland and actually even for a later stage, even like yeah. like Car Trawler, a huge company, still relies on Enterprise Ireland all around the world oh, yeah. mm. to open, not just open doors, but do recon and insight into who's who in that company, all this stuff. Like, I don't think any country that I'm aware of has that type of high-quality talent all around the world. That, that essentially, they're an extension of our business development of our marketing everywhere you go forget about their capital right love their capital their people on the ground you know are really really useful and a a key strength i think that ireland has absolutely we and we use the same in cubic they're fantastic yeah Yeah. Yeah. well that's where we're the same people (laughs) that's where we'll leave it guys but don't go anywhere because we're going to come back to you in just a few minutes for your one to watch the who or what we're all keeping an eye on in business this week Now, my next guest has been a leader in the renewable energy space for close to three decades. He's worked for ESB, been CEO of Board Namona, Airtricity and Mainstream Renewable Power. And his latest venture, Supernode, plans to sustainably power Europe via an interconnected supergrid. How's that for ambitious? It's Eddie O'Connor of Supernode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So, Eddie, Supernode being your latest baby, so to speak, you've had quite a decorated career in the renewable energy space up until now. Can you give us a quick run through? Of my career up to date, yeah. Well, we, we I started in the ESB when I, I qualified as a chemical engineer in 1970 and uh, I, I did various jobs there. It was a, a most interesting place to work because you got a whole load of different jobs finished up buying the fuel for them. In those days, I was a great sinner. I hadn't heard about global warming. I didn't know the role the CO2 played. And then I went into the biggest polluter in Ireland, which was Board Namona, as chief executive. They advertised and I applied for that and got that job. And, and so we had, uh, we had a real challenge on our hands there to make that work commercially. Um, and in 1989, one of the directors in Board Namona came to me and he said, you know, this CO2 stuff, it's actually destroying the planet. Uh, an Irish man called John Tyndall was the first to discover this working in the Royal Institution in London. And I said, but that can't be true. I mean, we breathe it out. It has to be harmless. By the way, it's the way we make all of our electricity, nearly. And he said, it doesn't matter. Uh, This is bad for the environment. So I began to study it. And then after a few months, I realised he's right. Um, And so from then on, my whole career has been kind of dominated by by this realisation that we had to do something about this. I was the major polluter in Ireland, responsible for releasing maybe 10 10 million tonnes of CO2 a year uh, by harvesting the bogs. And we built the first uh, wind farm in Ireland in 1992. We set up a little division in the company to look after uh, renewable energy, wind, in fact, in Ireland. It was a very primitive industry then. The machines were very small and, and uh, you know, a quarter of a megawatt. Um, never mind what a megawatt is, but it was a quarter. And now they offshore are 12 megawatts, so 48 times bigger than what we built originally and much more sophisticated and modern and, and with all kinds of modern materials. So uh, when I came out of Port in 1996, I immediately set up Airtricity, which 
which was designed to commercialise wind, and that was a great success um, in the sense that uh, the Doyle Committee on um, on Energy uh, reckoned that when they were taking the European law, they would allow us, because we were green, to sell to anybody in Ireland. And, and so we, we grew in the share price at, at uh, 54% a year for 11 years. And and so and that, got, that company got bought um, in 2008 by Scottish and Southern Energy. Uh, we had about 40,000 customers in Ireland at that stage, small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, we had about 400 megawatts in Scotland. We had big offshore. Going. We built the Arklow Banks wind farm off the coast of Wicklow, which is still the only offshore thing built in Ireland. Uh, we went to America and we built a lot in Texas and one in New York. Um, and then Scotch and Southern uh, you know, bought uh, our business here in Ireland. They've mm. taken it to whole new heights. Mm. Now, for the first time in my life, I had a bit of money. Uh, to set up Electricity, we borrowed, I think, 25,000 from the Bank of Ireland. And, mm. and, and, uh, you know, well, and then we got some investors, and, and so we, we began to grow. And then we set up Mainstream in 2008, uh, more or less immediately, and, and proceeded then to take the uh, wind business and solar to the rest of the world. So we went to South Africa, went to Chile, went back to America, we did offshore in the UK. Um, and I was chief executive there for, for nine years until 2017 when I handed over to Andy Kinsler, uh, who's, who's chief executive since. So <clears throat> when, I, when I stopped being chief executive, uh, I realised that we were actually going to have to decarbonise completely in Europe, and that meant... But what does that mean, actually? What does decarbonisation mean? It means that you make all your electricity from wind and solar and that you, 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 you just completely stop burning fossil fuels and that you replace all transport with electricity. So every heavy goods vehicle and every car uh, is, is powered by electricity, which you plug in and, and charge up at, at night or whenever. Uh, and all heating in Europe has to be made from electricity. So that's what decarbonisation means, that you, that you use wind and solar to make all your electricity and that, and that you replace all heating and all transport, as well as the 50% that's made from fossil fuels at the moment. So our demand for electricity in Europe is going to go from a current 3,100 terawatt hours to 7,800, a 250% increase in electricity over the next... Well, hopefully by 2050, we, we're in a, a big mission to save the planet here, mm. um, and and we have to do this quickly. And and you'd have to support and, and be delighted that Greta Thunberg is is doing what she's doing to call attention to this and to wake up politicians and 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 regulators and companies, uh, uh, you know, to to fulfil their responsibility to the to our succeeding generations. So anyway, offshore is going to be huge in Europe because that's where the big wins are. Uh, and and onshore we're running out of space. We're running out of wind speed. The wind speed. We, all the good sites are gone, and community resistance is increasing uh, to to onshore wind. So we've got to move offshore um, into the Irish Sea, into the North Atlantic, into the North Sea, Baltic Sea, and all the seas. There you don't have very many uh, environmental concerns. Certainly you have no visual intrusion. You have no noise. It's all well away from human beings. Um, you have to deal with things like birds and, and dolphins and stuff like that. But that's something that professional developers are well used to dealing with. And we do environmental impact assessments and, and all that. But you can build big scale offshore. You can build, uh, we got planning permission for 1800 megawatts uh, off the coast of Yorkshire as part of the, the mainstream uh, story. Mm. So we said, how are you going to get all this power? There's no grids offshore. So how are you going to get all this power uh, into where the people are? There's 550 million of us in Europe. And if we're going to replace all the fossil fuels and, 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 and with, with renewables, well, then we have to get the power to them. So we, we had always thought up this idea of the supergrid, uh, which was going to, you know, a, a grid basically in the seas and uh, around Europe, linking up all the countries and taking the energy from where you can get it. And the reason that I thought about it in the beginning in 2001 was because, you know, wind is variable. The wind doesn't blow all the time. It's mm. not like a fossil fuel where you can turn it up and turn it down according to <clears throat> what the electricity demand is. Uh, with wind, you take it when it blows and when it doesn't blow, you don't have any electricity. But if you can imagine... Uh, uh, you build a big grid, 5,000 kilometres long, and you collect the wind uh, all along that, uh, that vector, if you like. Well, then you, you get a ramp up 
and it stays even so long as the storm is there and then declines. It's not like a peak in Ireland, a peak in England, mm. peak in Holland, peak in Germany. So you make it even. So that was where the supergrid came from in the beginning. And then we said, uh, uh, what is the supergrid? Well, the supergrid is a collection of cables linking a bunch of super nodes. The super nodes are built in the sea, they collect the energy, they turn it into a format for long-range transport, and then uh, they route it towards where the, the customer is or where the next super node is so that it can be. For instance, we can envisage a big storm up here in Europe in wintertime, and down in the south there's very little sunshine, so we have to take a lot of power from up here and route it down to Spain and Italy and, and and what have you, the south of France, and over to Greece, indeed. Uh, so, so we said, right, we'll set up a company called Supernode. Supernode will design the underlying technology for the supergrid. Um, and we came across uh, a new, well, a phenomenon that I'd learned about in my engineering days, but was very superficial knowledge of this superconductivity. If you cool certain materials right down to... Uh, you know, near absolute zero, which is minus 273. But if you, with liquid nitrogen at minus 200 degrees, a certain uh, compound becomes superconducting. That means it conducts electricity without any loss uh, of, of power. In other words, with no losses and there's no heating. So you can move great quantities of power from from where it's been generated to to where the customer is, and we we estimate you can do that at a forty to fifty percent reduction on the price that of the current technology. So, so this is a very exciting thing. We we managed to recruit John Fitzgerald, who built the link between Dublin and Liverpool, the the undersea link there. Uh, he came to join us. Um, we have a team of about eight or nine people working on it now, all all very highly qualified. It's great working with these young guys because they want to do the want to do the job, mm. and we have some these uh, you know with gender balance as we can be. Uh, and, and that sounds like an incredibly ambitious uh, plan, and it's going to be a really exciting time for you. Um, and in terms of the money it's going to take, Eddie, um, I know it's going to be really high capital intensive. I think I think we had discussed that you'll need tens of billions over the next few years. Um, And this show being about raising capital, I can't imagine it's going to be too much fun to have to raise that kind of capital. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the tens of billions is going to come, uh, you know, when we have the technology developed. And it's, it's 10 million right now you're looking for, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Uh, and and, and, and uh, we, we can see our way to getting that. Uh, we've applied to Enterprise Ireland for a grant on the disruptive technologies. Enterprise Ireland see the huge benefit of this, we can build the Doyle Committee. Actually, uh, Hildegard Nocton's Doyle Committee uh, on on the energy uh, and climate change has figured that we could build seventy five thousand megawatts off the coast of Ireland. Seventy five thousand megawatts uh, would deliver, uh, you know, six times the amount of electricity that Ireland needs okay. uh, for full decarbonisation. So that has to get shipped into Europe. So if we can develop the technology here to allow that 600 kilometres to go straight into Europe and also underpin the technology that underpins the supergrid to balance the whole thing up, uh, well, then, you know, you have a, a market that very few people have seen and that very few people have the ambition or the courage or the foolhardiness uh, mm. to even attempt it. And considering what you're talking about here, a completely self-sufficient energy-wise and sustainable energy, uh, self-sufficient Europe, um, is it an easy sell? Is it an easy sell or an easy ask to get investors in renewable energy right now? Is renewable energy having its iPhone moment? Oh, I, th- I think there are several transitions, several tipping points have been reached uh, in in the last while. Um, you know what? What do we? Mean? Well, well, the price of renewable energy has collapsed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see. You know, we see the Greta Thunberg phenomenon, you know, so, so everybody is aware. Now, all, a lot of the big investors, are $70 trillion out there looking for an investment home. And, and, and people have, an app, have different appetites for investment. I mean, some people want low risk. So you invest in utilities, water utilities, electric utilities where there's no change. And then the other side of the spectrum is the IT space and, and the space that we're in. And there's people say, well, you know, if this guy at the O'Connor and, and Supernode, uh, you know, uh, succeed, <laughs> you know, there'll be billions, uh, hundreds of billions spent on this technology. And we need it to get the power from, from where it exists to where mm. the people are. 
So, so this is a bet I'm quite prepared to take. It's high risk. And that's what we do. We do high risk. And what's the antidote to high... Knowledge is the antidote to high risk. And being able to convince people that, that you know, we are locked on to the future. We are going to deliver this future. Somebody's going to deliver it. Mm. <laughs> this is the great thing about what we're at. We cannot go on polluting the world. So if you have that vision in your mind and you have the, 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 the intensity of purpose to be able to deliver on this, well, then people say, yeah, yeah. And, and also, with respect to ourselves, you know, we've delivered on, on everything we've set out to do so far. You know, we've, we've, had, a, we've had a great time board the Mona. That's been returned to profitability when I was there. Airtricity grew at 54% a year mainstream. As, as you probably are aware, you know, the share price went from, from three to nine uh, last year. Um, oh, well, it didn't happen last year, but that's the price mm. we, 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 we traded at last year. And can I ask you, how important do you think uh, that particular statistic uh, has been for you in the rest of your career? I mean, 54% growth year on year for, what did you say, 11 years? Yeah. Uh, that's a dream for anybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. It must have been quite a useful uh, tool to have in your arsenal then when you came along to different companies um, mainstream renewable power and of course Supernode to be able to say when you go to investors listen 54% growth year on year what more do you want did that, did that help you a lot? Well a lot of the people who, who came in fact I would say the great majority of the people who invest in electricity uh, you know left some of their money in, in mainstream um, so yes of course it's helpful mm. um, and, and we've maintained you know more millionaires were in Dublin were made out of electricity than any other company yeah. ever and so uh, a lot of people felt, yeah, these people know what they're talking about and, uh, and, and let's have a go and see what happens. So, yes, it does. You know, you're, 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 you're as good as your last match mm. in, in, in soccer and, and in rugby <laughs> and, and, in, and in business too, you know. And so, mm. so people, you know, they have to remember they all have capital. They all have their pension funds involved. And do they trust you? I mean, there's a lot of things here that, that okay, you're, you're a big success in, in electricity, right? And we're, so far, we're a big success in mainstream. But these big successes come not, uh, you know, they don't happen automatically. It's, it's how do you manage the troubles you're in? I mean, mainstream had, we came through some terrible years in mainstream with the Germans, you know, fighting inflation long after the battle against inflation was won. And until Mario Draghi came in in Europe and started to do the, the, the deficit spending, the buying up of these, the, what they call the quanti qualitative easing, quantitative easing. Until he did that, Europe was in a, in a deep recession, mm. kept there by the Germans, who didn't want to change anything because their exports were still going great. Um, and so we have we have an issue, um, you know, in Europe uh, with 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 you know some certain strong economies, and then the rest of us can be weak. So, but we had to come through that, and uh, you know there were some some really rough times when I had actually to put my hands in my pocket to pay the staff mm. because cash was delayed in South Africa, and you know so. But people say. These guy, this guy has done it, and so he knows uh, a bit about this stuff. So we'll back him again. But you're, you know, you're only as good as your, as your last. And we will be going to the public again with with um, Supernode. Um, we do need capital, uh, as you say yourself. Ten million is is the initial uh, thing that we need. Uh, we see our way to getting that, um, and then we intend to go to some of the big funders uh, and go to the United States, perhaps where. You know, there are various pots of capital, as I said. You know, you, you, if you want high risk, well, then these are the people you present to and you have to have a type of different speak and different business plan than if you're kind of in low risk and then there's intermediate risk in the middle. So, so the finding out the capital is always a big thing for you uh, as an entrepreneur. And not to get ahead of ourselves, because obviously Supernode is... Um fantastically, yeah. fantastically ambitious um, yeah. and, and will be amazing when it comes about, but... What would come next after Supernode? Will there be anything left to disrupt? I know you'd mentioned before um, the type of tech that a company like GE is likely to have in the future with a blade uh, twice the length of Croke Park pitch, was it? Yeah, um, the, 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 the Haliad the X, blade. which is being developed by GE at the moment, it's a, it's a 12 megawatt turbine and it's, uh, it's capable of 
of going to 17 megawatts. Now, remember that the one we built originally in Bella Corrig, that was a quarter of a megawatt. So How far you, we've come. Yeah, we've come a gigantic distance. Mm. And, we, and, and we still have a lot to go because we haven't really put carbon fibres in these blades. Mm. So I think the, the 17 megawatt one from Haliadex will be 230 metres diameter blade. Mm. I think Croke Park's 160 metres long. So right. so it is enormous. I was down in South Africa a couple of weeks ago looking at a fairly small turbine being erected, a 2.3 megawatt one. Mm. And I was astounded at, at just how things have changed in this industry. I thought I knew it very well. But if you're, you know, a tip for managers, you can only manage by walking around, going out there and looking mm. at the technology, getting a feel for it. And it was it would make you, it would make you proud actually uh, in this industry to see what we've managed to accomplish. And give uh, us some context here because a lot of people all they'll have seen wind turbine wise is what they'd maybe drive past on a long drive in Ireland. Yeah. How much would be produced by an onshore one versus an offshore one versus then what GE are going for? Well, you see, the big problem onshore is is the length of the blade. And, and, you know, you, you have to build usually in remote areas. Mm. So you have to cross rivers and streams where the roads are tiny. And, and, you know, we normally come up to a river and we go like that and then we go like that. So to, you have to actually sometimes take down the edges of the, of the, the bridge mm. in order to get your blade across. Right. And so, so you're actually limited on land by the length of the blade. But offshore you can build a ship to carry any blade. Mm. It does, and, and you can build a crane to lift a thousand tons. Uh, the blades that I was seeing in South Africa were uh, <coughs> twelve tons each, so there was uh, there was thirty six tons spinning in in the air. That that was the blade. The Haliad X. I, I don't know how many tons. I haven't mm. talked to G about the exact weight, but it's got to be some some small multiple of that. Now, of course. All, the blade in South Africa was built from glass fibre. The modern blade will be built, or the one that G is, is developing, will be built from carbon fibres. And they're much lighter and much stronger. And we need to go to that. So, But you're still going to have the best part, 50 tonnes spinning up there in the air um, with enormous length, big cranes to build it. Mm. But they, there's been a demonstration project for offshore um, uh, technology uh, built uh, in the Buchan Deep off Scotland. And I think uh, they're six megawatt turbines, mm. and and they, they're they've had eight meter waves to cope with, and they've coped with it, and and the deflection at the top is only three degrees. So despite big crashing storms and enormous waves, their deflection at the top is only three degrees. So it's it's very hopeful when you see what humans can do when mm. when we put our mind to what what needs to be done when we've got sufficient focus and determination to to rid the world of these of this terrible CO two stuff, we can do it. I mean, it's it's really just a, a lot of political decisions have to be made, and I'd have to be very uh, encouraged by what I see happening in the Hildegard Nocton's Dáil Committee at the moment. I mean, they said we want to do fifty seventy five thousand megawatts offshore. Mm. That's capable of supplying about five to six percent of Europe's demand for electricity. It's it right now. It's fourteen times. Uh, it would be fourteen times our electricity demand here in Ireland. So we can't really route it through Ireland. Mm-hmm. We've got to route it more or less straight to the continent, and that's where Supernode and the Supergrid comes in. Um, and but it would give you great hope that yes. Whatever it takes to do this, we can do it. And we can do it in harmony with nature. We don't have to pollute the planet. We don't have to leave our, our grandchildren with, with a legacy of, of, of disgust and loathing at, at former generations who knew what the problem was and did nothing about it. Well, what a positive note to end it on, Eddie. We can do it. <laughs> yes. And there is hope. And decarbonisation is possible and is looming towards us very, very quickly by the looks of it. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eddie, and the best of luck with Supernode and powering the whole of Europe. (laughs) Thank you. Eddie O'Connor there, our trailblazer for this week. Now, I'm still here with Shane Sorohan and Bobby Healy, who are about to tell me what their one to watch is for this week. So, Bobby, I'm going to start with you. What is your one to watch in business and why? Uh, so my one to watch is very exciting. It's, a, it's actually a person called Shane Curran. Uh, he's uh, new to the scene. I think this is his first startup. And I can't say who because he hasn't released the names publicly, but he's been backed by two really prominent Silicon Valley VCs. He's got an idea called Evervault, which is 
a tech business around protecting customer data, GDPR kind of stuff for developers. So it's a tech developer play. But for me, it's more about, look at this, you've got this, you know, fairly, you know, young guy that's based in Ireland, a huge, huge brain that's been able to go straight to West Coast Silicon Valley and raise a significant amount of capital around an idea. And if that's a pattern for the future for, you know, young guys with their first startup in Dublin, that's very, very exciting. Keep an eye on okay. that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Very on theme as well. Yeah. What about you, Shane? So my one to watch is within a, a market sector. So we do an awful lot within automotive. Uh, and it's looking at the trends within automotive at the moment. So everyone knows autonomous vehicles are coming. It's going to be years away yet because there's a lot of work to do to get infrastructure in place and finalise technologies. But in the interim, you're seeing a huge shift within automotive now where the car manufacturers are going through a digital transformation. Some of them are going through it and, and embracing it quicker than others. So over the next few years, you're going to see some car manufacturers that we've known for years and years either coming together to, to work together or some of them just won't make the transformation. And you're going to see a a lot of companies coming into the automotive space that weren't there previously, the likes of Google, you're seeing Uber and Lyft. So it's the market shift and trends within automotive over the next few years is going to be very interesting. Okay, I'm going to press you on that because what I always really want to know in these conversations is when is a car going to drive me around by itself? <laughs> 2050, what will a car look like in well, 2050? Well, you know what? The technology is there today and there's autonomous cars there mm -hmm. today that can drive you around by themselves. What's, what's going to take time is getting the infrastructure in place onto roads. Um, and then the transition from people driving cars to autonomous cars is going to need to be carefully managed, <laughs> otherwise there could be a lot of incidents. Uh, but it, I think it's in the kind of 10, 15, 20 year range, but it's going to be a transition, it's going to take time. I live with 20. <laughs> but the technology is there. <laughs> and what about regulation? Because obviously this is something Bobby mm. has gone through and is going through with drones. Yeah. How will that how will that come into play for autonomous vehicles? Oh, regulation will be key. The safety are key. The the safety standards and making sure that everything is is working as it should will will be absolutely uh, essential. And for cubic regulation is actually a key part of what it is that we're we're dealing with on a global basis, making sure that we meet all regulatory compliance for connected devices in those local regions. So it's a challenge that we actually solve for the companies that we work with. Okay, really interesting ones to watch there. Thank you so much, Shane Sarahan, CEO of Cubic Telecom, and of course, Bobby Healy, founder of Manage.Aero. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And thanks to our partners in AIB for backing all in. Now, on next week's show, we'll be finding out how to create a killer brand. And in the Trailblazer hot seat, we'll be meeting a serial entrepreneur who's at the helm of one of the fastest growing kid tech companies in the world. He's on a mission to make the internet a safer place for children everywhere. It's Dylan Collins off Super Awesome. Now, as always, in the meantime, you can contact us by using the hashtag AllInBusiness on any platform. And please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.